Blessed are those who mourn. They mourn their own sin, the presence and the persistence of it and the consequences of it. Blessed are those who mourn. They mourn the sin of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Blessed are those who mourn. They mourn the sin that exists outside of the church in society. This is Beholding Christ. I'm Matt Williams, your host. Welcome to part seven of The Beatitudes, Flourishing in Christ's Kingdom from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor Paul's text for today is the New Testament Gospel of Matthew, chapter five, verse four. He's looking at the second Beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What are the Beatitudes? There are nine pronouncements by Jesus of virtues and values which bring blessings to those who strive to be with our Lord in his kingdom. During this month, Pastor will focus on chapter 5, verses 3 through 12, one of the most important passages in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Pastor Paul introduced us yesterday to Beatitude 2, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, found in verse 4. And you may say, mourning is a normal part of life. I'm still mourning the loss of my father, mother, child, friend, or someone or something else. But the mourning Christ is referring to could largely be missing from one's life. Here's part seven of The Beatitudes, Flourishing in Christ's Kingdom. I was speaking to the deacons just last week about this very issue Acknowledging with them how individualistic our Christian faith has become. Radically different from the faith of our predecessors for thousands of years who understood that their striving in Christ was to be a team endeavor. Arm in arm, we live in the age of individualism so that we think of our Christianity in isolation from other people. We tend to think about our own personal responsibility to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, failing to acknowledge that the theology of the New Testament is one that commends us together to strive towards holiness, such that there is a real burden in the New Testament to be concerned for one another's sin, not with a spirit of judgmentalism, not with a judging spirit, we are to look upon the lives of one another and to genuinely grieve the presence of sin in each other's lives. We grieve the sin that is in our own life and we grieve the sin that is in the lives of those around us in the church. When we see a brother or sister in Christ bearing a grudge towards somebody else in the church, it grieves us. When we see a brother or a sister in Christ behaving in such a way so as to bring a note of disunity into the church, it weighs heavy on our hearts. 
When we see a brother or a sister in Christ being complacent in their Christian walk and failing to be zealous toward the work of the ministry, it weighs heavy on our hearts. We use the opportunity undoubtedly to assess the standing of our own heart, but so also we grieve the sin that is present in the life of those around us. This is proper mourning to which Jesus commends us. And it doesn't stop there. Blessed are those who mourn. They mourn their own sin, the presence and the persistence of it and the consequences of it. Blessed are those who mourn. They mourn the sin of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Blessed are those who mourn. They mourn the sin that exists outside of the church in society. Again, Isaiah spoke to the many captives. He proclaimed liberty for the many who were mourning. They were mourning not only at the presence of sin in their own lives, but as they looked around them and they saw how society dishonors God. Again, the Apostle Paul speaks of this very idea when he writes to the Philippians in chapter 3 and he says, through tears, I speak about the ones who defame the cross of Christ through tears. He is lamenting the sin of those who are not in Christ. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says, my eyes are full of tears. Why? Because your law is not honored. He is speaking about the sin that he sees around him. And so it is our responsibility to flight all tendency towards complacency with the sin that prevails in society. Do not let your heart become complacent as it relates to the sin that you see around you. Cultivate a fervent spirit of mourning as you see millions of unborn children killed. Do not become complacent, but allow yourself to grieve at the reality of the fact. As you think and hear about millions of young women being trafficked across the globe as objects, don't become complacent thinking it's just the time in which we live. Grieve the fact. As you see so many different groups putting pressure on people so as to confess a lie that they know to be a lie as it relates to the reality of what it is to be a man or a woman, don't become complacent, but grieve the reality of the sins that are in our time. This is what it means to mourn. And these are the ones who Jesus said will be happy because those people, are the ones who cry out to Christ for salvation. It is those mourners, those who take sin seriously, not only acknowledging its presence, but grieving its reality, that understand they have absolutely nothing to offer so as to amend, affix, address the problem. The only solution is found in Christ. He is issuing an invitation that is Christ-centered. The reason that he can say, blessed are those who mourn, flourishing are those who mourn, is because those who mourn cling to Christ. They cling to Christ as the only one who can deal with the problem of sin. And so the first question with which we're confronted as we think through what it means to mourn is whether you have clung to Christ 
as a response to the grief of sin. There are hundreds of reasons why you might cling to Christ. You might cling to Christ because you understand that in doing so, he'll make your life go well. You might cling to Christ because in him you find some sense of security. You might cling to Christ because you enjoy being at church and being accepted by the people here. In chapter 5 of verse 4 of Matthew's gospel, Christ himself teaches us, cling to me because you have been grieved over sin. And as you come to me, you find a solution. You find a redeemer, a savior, the only savior who has dealt finally and ultimately with the problem of sin. The only Savior who lived perfectly, never sinning, and then died on a cross so as to offer his life as a sacrifice for sin, rose triumphantly from the grave so as to demonstrate his victory over sin, such that as you cling to him, you understand now your sins are forgiven. They are washed away so that you stand before God, utterly forgiven by him. And more than that, as he clothes you in his righteousness, now wonderfully and gloriously, he begins to work in your life that you would no longer sin. He begins to work in your life so that you would walk away from the practice of sinning. Not that you will ever be there perfectly this side of heaven, but now for the first time ever, disassociating yourself with sin is a possibility, is a reality. That is what it looks like to cling to Christ because you have grieved your sin. Blessed are those who mourn. It should be noted there are other hindrances to taking in this teaching and living our lives by it. You look at the saints of old and you see that grieving over sin was normal for them. Simeon in Luke's gospel, at the very beginning of the gospel of Luke, he sees Christ as a child. And upon seeing Christ, he can say, now I can depart. Why? Because I have seen the consolation of Israel. He was a man that felt the weight of sin. Undoubtedly, his own sin and the sin of those around him in seeing Christ, he says, now I can depart because I've seen the consolation, the comfort of Israel. He didn't need to be instructed to mourn. He was in a state of mourning and Christ presented the solution. Equally, we read of, of Thomas Watson who spoke of the fact that our sin needs to come with tears. Our sin needs to come with tears. It was as ordinary and as commonplace for him to say that as it would be for us today to say that the Christian needs to always be smiling. Some years ago, Carl Truman wrote an article entitled, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? What can miserable Christians sing? And in the article, he laments the worship music of the church today, noting how rarely it mirrors the laments, the painful, honest laments of the Psalter, and how often the songs that we sing today portray a Christianity that is just happy-go-lucky. A Christianity that is altogether frivolous. He laments the fact, and so should we, and it doesn't extend only to our worship music. But all too often the Christian life today is lived with a facade in place. 
not truly coming to terms with our sins such that we feel burdened by its reality, but skipping along because we found this man, Jesus, and he's a friend of ours, he's our buddy, and now I can just be frivolous all my days. That is not the Christian life, and so perhaps more so than ever, we need to learn the discipline of mourning. We have to learn what it means to grieve our sin. I was reading just this week a order of service from the common book of prayer given during a communion service. The words given in this order of service that the congregation would recite together, corporately. We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. One thing that we strive to do here on a Sunday morning in our liturgy, in the order of service, is to acknowledge afresh each and every Sunday that we are sinners, fueled by the prayers that in our acknowledgement there would be a grieving of our spirits, not simply that we would confess the reality of our sin, but that we would grieve it. I was in a conversation just recently with a man who had come to visit us. I was following up with him because I hadn't seen him for some weeks, and he explained that he won't be returning And they asked why, and he explained his beliefs, and they don't align with our beliefs, our understanding of what the Bible is and who Christ is. And I said, you are right, you would be better served elsewhere if that's what you believe. And in passing, he said, it strikes me at your church, there is an emphasis on our sin. And I didn't take it as a criticism, took it as a great encouragement that he came in Just a handful of times he was with us, and he saw an emphasis on our sin. But again, I want to stress simply showing up and confessing together the presence of our sin, the persistence and the consequences of our sin, the sin of our brothers and sisters and the sin that exists outside of the church is not what Jesus is exhorting us towards here, but rather a grieving of those sins. And so... The question persists, how then do we cultivate a grief over our sins? Not merely an acknowledgement of them, but a grieving and a mourning. And it's important to say this has to be a work of God's grace in your heart. It has to be a work of God's grace in your heart. You might pray that God would cause you to grieve your sin. But with that, I want to note very practically now, to note that the means by which God's grace finds us is often channeled through the same avenues. How do we cultivate genuine grief in our hearts? Not the kind of grief that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, worldly grief that brings death, not that kind of grief, but the kind of grief that genuinely brings forth repentance. How do we cultivate that? And I would encourage you to be in God's Word so as specifically to see His glory. The most prominent example from Scripture itself is that of Isaiah the prophet. Again, in chapter 6, the prophet stands before the throne of the Lord. In John's gospel, we learn that whom he saw that day was Christ. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, says the prophet. He was beholding Christ. 
And he describes how his glory filled the temple and the seraphim were flying around, uh, around him singing, holy, holy, holy. He sees the glory of Christ and the very first words that come from his lips, woe is me. I am undone. I am a sinner of unclean lips and I'm surrounded by sinners of unclean lips. The way in which you cultivate a genuine spirit of mourning and grieving over sin is to take in steadfastly the glory of Christ as he is presented to us in Scripture. And as you meditate upon his excellencies, begin to mourn. Begin to mourn. If you've heard the Puritan's advice on prayer, how, how do I pray genuinely with my spirit? How do I pray? They say you pray until you pray. You start moving your lips and you speak to God and you do it until your spirit joins in and you pray until you pray. And trust me, watch how your spirit will follow. By God's grace, you pray and you just start. You don't wait for that spirit of desire to come upon you. You just start praying and watch how the spirit follows. You pray until you pray in the same vein. Take in the glory of Christ from scripture and mourn. Respond to God, having taken in the glory of his son and say, God, I hate my sin. God, I am so heavy hearted by the reality of my sin. Mourn until you mourn. Grieve your sin and the sin of those around you and the sins in society until your spirit is overcome with mourning. And then you shall be blessed. And that is only half of the thought. Every beatitude has a present and a future teaching. Blessed, flourishing, joyful, happy are those who mourn. It is speaking about your present condition. There is a promise right now for those who grieve their sin. You will flourish to live in that way. And second half of the verse, you will be comforted. There is a present blessing flourishing available for the mourners and there is a future promise you are doubly blessed both now and in the future because there is a comfort that is on the way that comfort is the comfort of which isaiah speaks in chapter 61 as he speaks about the forthcoming kingdom it is a comfort wherein those who have lived with a spirit of mourning throughout their earthly lives, will be covered in garments of praise. It is a spirit of comfort that meets the spirit of mourning. You will be anointed with the oil of gladness in that day. And there will be a dealing with your sin. I find that to be maybe one of the most encouraging thoughts as I meditate upon the blessed hope that we have in Christ. Set your minds towards his second coming. He will appear and every knee will bow. What will happen in that day? One of the most encouraging thoughts is to know that he will deal with my sin. Such that the very next morning as I arise for the first time, having acknowledged the return of Christ, the very next morning I will arise and feel strangely different because no longer will there be any pride in my heart. 
No longer will there be the pride that so courses through my veins, dictating the way I think and speak. It will be dealt with. It will be gone. And I will find myself to be wonderfully new in Christ. The consummation of your salvation will come when he appears. So be comforted by that future promise, knowing that in that day there will be great reward for those who mourn. There will be a comfort that is realized not only because he will deal with your sin, but he will deal with the sins of those around you. To come together and to sing his praises on that day will be wonderfully new because there will be no presence of sin amongst the congregation. There will be no sin plaguing our thoughts as we try to direct our hearts towards Christ. It will be pure and undefiled corporate worship as we've never experienced it before. And there will be a comfort on that day as Christ deals with the sins that exist in society. No longer will the sinful actions of men be allowed to flourish. Every wrong will be judged. And there will be a peace that prevails. And comfort will abound when Christ returns. And so the invitation persists. Jesus speaks to his disciples. He speaks to the crowds. He's asking them to consider a way of life. Kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered, a way of flourishing. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Pray with me to close. Father, we praise you for these words from your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We praise you that there is a way to flourish in this sin-cursed life, there is a means by which we can know happiness. And in a paradoxical manner, it is by grieving. Oh, Father, we pray that you would give us spirits that mourn. Give us spirits that grieve the reality of sin. Forbid us, Father, to grow complacent with the sin that is in our lives, the sin that is in the lives of those around us in the church, and the sin that exists in society, but rather give us a fervent spirit of mourning that we may know and experience as a daily reality the flourishing to which Jesus commends us and instill in us a desire, a longing for his return, that great and glorious day when we shall be comforted. We look forward to his return and we give you thanks for these truths. In his name, amen. You are listening to Beholding Christ. Mourning a personal loss can't be what to mourn is as Christ means it in this beatitude. Every normal human mourns loss in their own way, but that's not the mourning Christ is referring to. Pastor Paul has taught us both yesterday and today that in this beatitude, mourning is an intense mourning over sin, and not simply in our own lives. In this age of individualism, we may be self-focused all the time, repenting for our sins and striving to be holy, but Christianity is not an individual thing. We must mourn sin's power over our Christian brothers and sisters and its domination in culture where we reside. These sins, along with our own, should be the source of mourning before our God. 
You know, there's always more to learn and hear when it comes to following Christ. Come to our website for more, beholdingchrist.org, beholdingchrist.org. Select Broadcasts, and there you'll have free access to our program archives, including this series and the message you just heard. Beholding Christ is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Did you know you can be part of bringing this life-changing Bible-based message to thousands of others as a listener-supporter? Your financial gift makes you a part of what God is doing through this outreach ministry to share the good news of Jesus. Simply hit Give on the homepage of BeholdingChrist.org to make a secure donation of any amount. Thank you for your consideration. Join us tomorrow as we continue in our series with part eight, Beatitude number three, why meekness is a part of flourishing in Christ's kingdom. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening.